Guardian Unlimited. Hello, I'm Alison Benjamin, and this is Environment Weekly. Coming up on this week's show, Norm Rosen of California State University talks to us about trying to save orangutans from extinction. The rate that they're dying right now, if they could last another 10 or 12, maybe 15 years, we'd be very fortunate. In fact, the only place that you would probably see them in the future would be in zoos. We find out how green the US presidential candidates are, and we're in London for Campaign of the Week with Tier Fund's Carbon Fast for Lent. This is Environment Weekly from Guardian Unlimited. studio are John Vidal, The Guardian's environment editor, and Leo Hickman, the paper's ethical living editor, to discuss some of the week's top eco-stories. Any green news that's made you happy this week? John? Uh, two. I telephoned McDonald's to check out whether their, their lorries are now being run on chip pan fat, which they promised this time last year. And are they? And lo and behold, they are. Well, a third of them are, and the rest by the end of the year. So that's pretty good. But yeah. I also want to say spring has sprung officially, and there's all kinds of uh, sightings of tadpoles and, and butterflies and whatever. And I know this is very bad news, some people say, but I actually think <laughs> it's very good because I'm fed up with this long, miserable winter already. <laughs> Leo? Well, I was pleased to see the low emissions zone introduced in London, um, having lived in London for a fair few years. I know what it's like to be walking along on pavements or on bikes and sucking in those sort of tailpipe emissions. And I think it was quite a bold and brave move to do it. I hope other cities around the world will follow it. Good. So just how green are Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama or even John McCain? With the US presidential candidate hopefuls battling out for their party's nomination in 20 states, we asked The Guardian's Ewan McCaskill in Washington who should get the green vote. The environment hasn't been one of the big issues of this campaign, except in the part of John McCain, who uh, makes a big deal in all of his speeches about the uh, danger posed by global warming. McCain says that even if the scientific evidence turns out to be incorrect, then we'll still all be healthier for having taken action. But McCain's view is that the scientific evidence is not in dispute. So that's an even more pressing reason for doing something. And if you go to McCain's uh, rallies, he always attracts lots of green activists. They follow him around, they have their banners there, and uh, McCain always acknowledges them, says, see these young guys, they're the future, and they're concerned about the planet. He's built up a sort of core support on the green side. On the democratic side, you almost uh, never hear anything significant about the environment. Barack Obama endlessly talks about the planet is in peril, but he doesn't spend specify what you would do about it. And you don't hear much about it from Hillary Clinton either. There's other issues that they're more concerned about, Iraq economy. So the environment doesn't come up. But there's a good reason for that. They both have big teams of experts behind the scenes discussing the sort of nitty gritty of what would need to be done on global warming. You know, in the months to come, you know, once we get into a sort of November general election and the run up to that, we will see these policy details sort of rolled out. The assumption in uh, the US has been that there will be no significant change until Bush is out of the White House. And it doesn't really matter whether it's a Democrat or a Republican comes in. We'll start to address global warming and we will see changes. To some extent, America has been reacting anyway. The states like California and other states have been passing legislation and taking action uh, unilaterally, not waiting for the federal government. But once Bush is gone, then you will see a clear direction from the federal government as well.
that was Ewan McCaskill in Washington. Leo, you wrote a blog about how the race for the White House has disappointed in one crucial area, the environment. I must admit, I have been quite disappointed. I, so three or four months ago, I really felt that you would see the environment come to be one of the lead campaigning issues. And I, I thought that would be the case. And back in Ohio, for example, and sort of deep in SNL country, you got a sense that they were obviously talking about it for kind of clear political reasons, given all the potential votes to be had there. But it does seem to have drained away as an issue. John, are you surprised that they haven't talked more about renewables or biofuels or nuclear power? Uh, slightly. I think they will. I think it will become a bit of a defining issue because as it gets closer, so you're going to get that much closer to the Kyoto follow-up, the questions are going to have to be asked. The fact that McCain has got people like Schwarzenegger on his side is going to be very significant. California votes are going to go towards environment. I think there's going to be a huge battle for it later on. I don't think either party really wants to go too soon on this one. And it's a bit of a sleeping issue which will come up and may biff both of them in the face. This is what American blogger Frankly Mike had to say on the subject. It's a generalization, but American lifestyle and relatively blinkered vision means we won't go for the environmental argument. To get elected, it's not convenient to mention the ridiculously cheap fuel prices in the U.S. and the need to recycle. That is obvious for every other nation to see. Gore gets plaudits, but that is just the movies. In real life, we won't pay more for gasoline, etc. And anyway, the effects of all this will be in Africa, which is, I believe, a faraway country which has nothing really to do with us. And you can join the debate at blogs.guardian.co.uk slash climate change. Environment News. Fears surround EU plans to ban patio heaters. The Daily Telegraph. Euro MPs have voted to phase out the sale of patio heaters and other appliances with low energy efficiency. But publicans in the UK say that heaters are needed for customers driven outside by the smoking ban. They estimate it could cost them £250 million in lost business. Moreover, a UN climate change expert claims the impact of the patio heater is minimal. He says plasma TVs are more of a problem. John, should we ban patio heaters to tackle climate change? In the great scheme of things, it's, um, it's, it's just a, a symbol of sort of complete wastefulness and neglect. And what about this UN climate change expert? Uh, uh, unfortunately, I think you'll find that he works for Calor Gas, which happens to be the company which is providing most of the gas which heats these patio heaters. It's basically a fraud. Don't, um, <laughs> don't listen to him at all. Leo, do you have any sympathy? with the publicans? Not really. Obviously, they're claiming they're taking a bit of a hit because of the, the smoking ban is forcing customers outside and they obviously don't want to lose that business. The EU are actually looking at all appliances and how, and I think that's a general way to do it. And if, if patio heaters don't make the grade and they fall by the wayside, I don't feel too much sympathy. I love the idea that plasma TVs are more of a plot problem <laughs> as if you've got all these smokers outside pubs also watching plasma TVs <laughs> as well whilst having a quick fag. Global meltdown. Scientists isolate areas most at risk from climate change. The Guardian. A team of climate experts has ranked the most fragile and vulnerable regions on the planet. Top is the Arctic sea ice and Greenland ice sheet, which they say it may already be too late to save. Next is the Amazon rainforest and the boreal forests in the north. John, are these reports helpful or do they just paint doom and gloom and people think they can't do anything? Well, how many ways can you tell a bad news story? It's very scary, actually. I think, I think the value of something like this is it puts it all together. It's not just the glaciers going, it's not just the forest. It puts them all together. And so you kind of have a list. You can step back and see the scale of what is happening. So in that sense, I think it's very valuable. But it is very, very bad news. And it just confirms an awful lot of stuff we've heard already. So it, it has a value. From a sort of journalistic exercise, you do 
sometimes wonder what the reader makes of that sort of drip, drip, drip of bad news, almost whether it's instilling a kind of cry-wolf mentality in people. Journalistically, as long as you try and balance that as much as possible with a more solutions-driven reporting and you balance it up, then I think you must report strongly on these kind of reports. Olympians face a stealthy opponent, Beijing's smog, the New York Times. American athletes are so concerned about pollution at this year's Olympics that they are being given special face masks for use the moment they set foot in Beijing until they begin to compete. John, is this really going to be necessary? Is this complete overreaction by the Americans? Well, two things. Um, Number one, China and the pollution is one of the worst stories of the year. The scale of the urban pollution in Beijing and elsewhere has really not surfaced. I mean, the level of what is happening is terrible. And the Chinese are really trying to remove a lot of these factories well, well beyond the city. Having said that, I think these are political games as well. And America and its scientists are using it to say that we're still the top dogs, we're better than them. So they're trying to win the pre-Olympics battle, which (laughs) is actually going to be about the environment as much as anything. I'm Alison Benjamin. Still to come on this edition of Environment Weekly, we get the latest on Guardian Unlimited's Tread Lightly campaign, and we find out how we can save the orangutan. Religious leaders have been criticised for not making the environment a priority for their followers, but this week the bishops of Liverpool and London have joined with the development agency Tear Fund to call for all of us to cut our personal carbon use for the 40 days of Lent. For our campaign of the week, we meet a man who has risen to this challenge and is preparing to become Low Carbon Man. I'm Ben Clowney. I'm campaigns officer at uh, Tear Fund, a relief and development agency based in Teddington in southwest London. And for a week, starting on next Friday, I'm going to be low carbon man. I'm going to be living in a tent in the car park at Tear Fund, where I work, in a bid to try and highlight the different things that people can do to cut their carbon emissions. I've done a few challenges before. And last year, I was fair trade man. For a fortnight, I lived entirely on food with a fair trade mark on it. So lots of rice and beans and fruit and nuts and things like that. But this year, I decided to pitch my tent in the Tear Fund car park in a bid to try and live a week using as little carbon as I possibly can. So it's going to be a week of cycling to farmer's markets, probably not much time spent in heated or lit buildings, which should be fun in February, maybe even canoe to my local shops to get food. Everything I can really do to try and highlight the things that people can do to cut their carbon emissions. Because at Tear Fund, we're starting something called the Carbon Fast. At the start of Lent, over 40 days, we're highlighting 40 actions which people can take to reduce their carbon emissions. The amazing thing is that even by going to these extremes, I'm hoping to cut my carbon by about 95%, I'll still be emitting what uh, average Malawian farmer emits in a whole month. The difference is just mind-blowing. That was Ben Clowney, and we'll see how he's getting on when we visit him in his tent on next week's show. More information on Tear Fund's Carbon Fast for Lent is at www.tearfund.org. And if you know of any green campaigns in the UK or further afield that we should feature on this podcast, tell us at blogs.guardian.co.uk slash ethical living. From saving CO2 to saving orangutans, we heard this week that great apes are dying from viruses. These are directly transmitted by ecotourists on jungle holidays that help raise funds to protect wildlife. What the report failed to say was in Borneo and the Indonesian island of Sumatra, the only two places where orangutans are found in the wild, they face such a great threat from deforestation and illegal logging that they could be extinct within 15 years. American anthropologist Norm Rosen is known for his conservation work with orangutans. 
I started by asking him about the scale of the problem. One of the ways that I've been describing the scale is in Africa, there's a serious problem with uh, the loss of gorillas and chimpanzees. If you take a look at the number of chimpanzees that are orphans today living in sanctuaries in about 12 countries, there's approximately about 800 and a few hundred gorillas. If you take a look at the orangutan situation, it has skyrocketed in the last three years from a few hundred orphans to something in the order of 12 to 1,400. So if you make that comparison between two primates, great apes that are in trouble, the orangutan is in far more serious situation. We hear it's on the uh, critically endangered list and that there aren't that many left in the wild now. What are the estimates? If you're talking about captive orangutans in zoos, maybe 1,500 to 1,000 between Europe, Southeast Asia, and United States. If you're talking about in the wild and you include Malaysia as well as Indonesia, you're probably looking at something in the magnitude of about 50,000. But that's an estimate from about three to four years ago, we did a survey. Today, there's been so many losses, over 5,000 per year, that we're kind of guesstimating. And the losses are really down to the expansion of the palm oil plantations, the clearance of the forests in Indonesia to make way for palm oil. Is that correct? That's correct. The palm oil agriculture, or growing of the palm oil, is accelerated at such a rapid rate. It's been like a giant snowball, and so many different companies have gotten in the business. And, of course, the Chinese are one of the biggest due to their population issue. So they have great needs, and also they have a checkbook. It has so much money in there, we don't know what the balance is. So they're buying up land uh, left and right. And we've heard that if this goes on unabated, that the orangutan could actually be extinct within sort of 12 years or so. That's correct. The rate that they're dying right now, if they could last another 10 or 12 maybe 15 years, we'd be very fortunate. In fact, the only place that you would probably see them in the future would be in zoos. That's a sad situation, but of course that situation also exists in Indonesia with the Sumatran rhino and the tiger. We hear that more and more of the retailers and supermarkets in the UK are looking to phase out unsustainable palm oil. Is this going to be enough? Is this going to save the orangutan? No. It's going to help. I believe that England has uh, been very aggressive in trying to help solve the problem by the sustainable approach. The problem lies with the Indonesian government. That's the primary root cause. They have signed agreements in Kinshasa that they were going to protect their forest and their apes. They haven't lived up to that. In addition to that, at the Bali conference, which was just a few weeks ago, they made all kinds of pronouncements that they're going to save the orangutan and uh, do all kinds of different things. And we haven't seen not one effort to date. How can we police this internationally then? How can we stop this happening? I think the biggest thing that we have to do is we have to put pressure 
on the government because in the case of the orangutan, it's one of the flagship species that tourists have always wanted to see. And of course, their tourism business is dropping, which has always brought in a lot of income. I think we have to sit down with the government to show them a win-win situation where it's in their best interest to protect. For instance, they have a lot of national parks. Let's make sure that the orangutans, tigers, all the different mammals and birds are in these areas. At the Bali conference, they were looking for Europe and United States and various other countries to give them lots of money. So what can um, a concerned person do about this, you know, in this country or, or in the U.S.? I think the, the biggest thing that they could do is support various organizations. Uh, for instance, WWF, which is very large, uh, Conservation International. Here in England, they have a wonderful organization called the Great Ape Alliance, I believe. There's lots of organizations that can put pressure on the government, but also the individual governments. I think we have to have resolutions and people signing petitions. I made a proposal in the United States and Europe that all the zoos start collecting petitions showing that there's a great concern by the whole world. So together we can save the orangutan? We can. That was Professor Norm Rosen on how we can help to save the orangutan. John, do you think there's any chance? Yeah, I do, actually. Uh, plenty of chance. I think they're absolutely symbolic. There's always huge conservation money for things like that. Buffer zones, very big organisations are, are absolutely determined to keep them. I think they will because this kind of conservation requires money and requires political will. And it's pretty easy to get for orangutans, gorillas, whatever. It's not easy to get for um, lower life, if you like. Um, and that is the problem. So we, at the risk of losing the lot, we're going to save the few. One of my concerns is the issue of, sort of using tourism to sort of save these species. And I'm actually of the, of the view that certain areas shouldn't be open to tourists. I think certain places are too precious, too vulnerable to just allow them unrestricted access to tourism. And I think that the argument with the great apes, for example, is that you can raise funds... I, I sort of worry about the argument that you would only want to protect these things if you physically actually see them. I want to protect Antarctica. I don't need to actually go mm. there. I can mm. sort of appreciate that for myself. Mm. I don't need to get on a cruise ship and go and sail around Antarctica. It's very tricky. On the ground, this tourist money is very, very valuable. I mean, it really is the difference between employing people, guards and whoever, and not having them at all. There isn't that much money for on-the-spot stuff. So the other thing is that, in my experience, you can't actually get that close for that long to the apes. Somewhere. So this thing of, of the apes can human coals and whatever, Some, something's gone badly wrong because normally you're not allowed to spend more than about 10 or 15 minutes mm. near them and you've got to stay at a fair distance away. So something's gone wrong, but I, I, I don't agree with the principle that we should exclude people from parks. As soon as you go down that line, you're going back to where conservation was 30 years ago. I mean, it was absolutely a disaster. OK, well, I'm sure this debate will run and run. And now, Jessica Aldred's here to tell us about this week's pledge for Tread Lightly. Reduce, reuse and recycle is a good green mantra to stick to. So far, we've looked at reducing things like car journeys and air travel. Last week, we asked Tread Lightly users to pledge to reuse plastic bags. And this week's pledge is to recycle glass bottles. Right now on the website, we're asking you your views on Tread Lightly. It's been up and running for four months now, and nearly 4,000 readers have helped to save over 40 tonnes of CO2. That's the equivalent of turning off a coal-fired power station for 15 minutes. So log on to guardian.co.uk forward slash tread lightly and tell us what you'd like to see more of. 
Leo, how important is it to recycle in terms of saving CO2? That is one of the reasons for doing it. I wouldn't say it's the key reason because I think that you'll, you'll get into all kinds of sort of gnarly and difficult debates about what savings you're making depending on what resource you're recycling. But I think as a general principle, obviously we should be recycling. It's almost like a mindset, a symbolic reason that we need to move away from this kind of waste culture. The act of recycling, even if it's just showing your children, for example, that you shouldn't just toss everything in, into landfill. I think that's very, very important. John, you well, a recycler? Well, well said, Leo. Um, yeah, again, getting better. It's on the great scheme. I haven't been the world's best over the years. I've been a low consumer, but not a great recycler. But I'm learning. Well, that's it for another edition of Environment Weekly. Many thanks to John Vidal and Leo Hickman and to my producer, Ian Chambers. Next week, the Green Party's London mayoral candidate, Sean Berry, will be here in the studio. If you have any questions you'd like to put to Sean, post them at blogs.guardian.co.uk slash ethical living. And do give us your feedback on this podcast. I'm Alison Benjamin. Thanks for listening. Guardian Unlimited.